Let us turn in God's Word to Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The text we'll have before us this morning. It's found on page 1035 of the Pew Bibles that we have. And I remind you that when we open up God's Word, we're not standing over it, as it were, but we're coming, coming under it to receive from its power, to receive its admonitions, to, to be exposed by the Word. In a, in a way, God's Word is exegeting us and revealing our own hearts and where we stand before Him. And so, with that in mind, hear now God's Word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 through 11. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and princes, provinces. I acquired men and women, singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So far, the reading of God's Word Let's pause and pray and ask for his blessing. Father God, we we come under your word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we ask, O Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts. You would shine abroad in our hearts the light of your grace and truth to reveal us, to make us know uh, what we truly desire and how distorted we are that we might find our wholeness in you and you alone. We ask this for your sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Utopia. Utopia is a philosophical concept. It refers to an imaginary place with a perfect society. A perfect society. Now, if we pause and think about utopia, each of us here would have a different version of utopia, your ideal society, because at this moment, each of us has different dreams and preferences and desires in our heart. And so, 
in your personal utopia, your dream world, what do you find, as you pause and reflect, what do you find would be at the center of it, the very heart of that perfect society? What is at the middle of your ideal city? Maybe it's a, a nice house, Joanna Gaines style, with a big yard where you find uh, your family relaxing and the kids playing in the yard. Or maybe it's a big stadium filled with crowds of people cheering you on with your name in lights. Or maybe it's a quiet shack on a tropical beach in Margaritaville. Is it a gourmet restaurant, maybe, with a table reserved for you and your loved one, your spouse, with an endless selection of fine wines? What is it? What's, what's at the center of your ideal city, your ideal society? And I think if we do this exercise, if we really think about this and pause and reflect in our hearts, we'll find what our heart truly desires deep down. We'll find that our greatest and deepest desire is there in our heart. And we'll find that that is what we think we need in order to have true happiness and true joy. If I only had that. So what does your heart treasure in this moment, in this morning? Because whether you admit it or not, what your heart treasures is what you're living for, what you're pursuing, what you're chasing after. And in today's passage, the teacher speaks to his own heart and tries to achieve real happiness, fullness of joy. And in a sense, he begins to imagine his own version of utopia, his perfect society, and then he explains to us how he struggled in his life to make it happen and never could arrive. He describes three of his experiments for happiness here, and then he gives us some concluding thoughts at the end. Three ways in which he seeks fullness, and three ways in which all of humanity tries to seek fullness. First, as a connoisseur of pleasure, then as a constructor of projects, and then lastly, as a collector of possessions. So first, let's consider the connoisseur of pleasure. In verses 1 through 3, he experiments with all of the pleasures in life. He said to his heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And then in verse 3, he says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. You see, he, in this, he had a purpose in mind, a, a goal that was guiding him. He explains in verse 3, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He's not just indulging himself for the sake of indulging. He's trying to find trueness or find true joy and true fullness. He was in search of something good, a permanent joy, real happiness. Now, as we read this, maybe in our mind, we, if we know the Bible, maybe we think of another passage. We might think of another character, another story, the parable of the prodigal son who squandered his property in reckless living, pursuing all kinds of pleasures. And there are similarities to that story that we find in Luke, but there's also a big difference because the preacher here, the teacher, explains that he sought to cheer himself with pleasure while his heart was still guided by wisdom, 
And so this isn't an experiment in reckless, indulgent living. Rather, he's guided, in a sense, by the fear of God still. He's not losing himself to various pleasures and delights that the world offers. He managed to exercise some self-control and prudence in this process with moderation. And that's why I'm calling him a connoisseur of pleasures here. A connoisseur is more of an expert in pleasures in life, an expert in, in food and in drink. A true connoisseur of wine is most likely not going to be a drunkard, for example. A connoisseur doesn't pick up a glass of wine in order to escape the pains of life, numbing his pain with alcohol. No, a connoisseur is seeking a higher trained delight, a a heightened awareness of his senses to delight in the best of pleasures that life has to offer. And so the teacher is not some glutton drinking a a 12-pack of Natty Light while watching a football game on his couch. Rather, think of him as a connoisseur of wine in in a vineyard house in Napa Valley, twirling his glass there, putting his nose in it, smelling all the aromas, and able to detect all the variety and richness that's there, and then sipping a little bit and twirling it around and his, swishing it around in his mouth. That's the kind of guy that he is here. That's the kind of pursuit that he is in. And this distinction is important because uh, one is the pursuit of a heightened sense of life's greatest delights, where the other is a pursuit of numbing one's senses to the pains of life. And there is a a big difference there. We can think of it in a different way. He's kind of like a a food critic, uh, like Helen Rossner, a, a food critic and a writer. She specializes in gourmet food. And her job is to eat the delicacies of the the finest restaurants in the world, and then write reviews of her findings. Pretty good job, right? And not too long ago, Rosner wrote about an interesting discovery that she had in her job. She wrote that you can get so used to delicacies in life, the, the best delights that food has to offer, that you'll get bored with them. She says that after so much gourmet food, the charm quickly gave way to tedium. To boredom. Even after training her palate, better trained palate than any of us here, to enjoy the greatest delights of food, she got bored with all of it. She concluded it's possible to have too much of a good thing. It's a conclusion similar to the teacher here in Ecclesiastes where he says, and it turned out that all this was meaningless. Vanity. Vapor. He got bored. Now, many of us would probably like Rossner's job, a great a food critic of gourmet food, right? You punch the clock to eat at three-star Michelin restaurants. Wow, that sounds pretty nice. And yet, think of this critic and what she concluded, that even that would not satisfy you in the end. Even that would eventually get boring for you. Rosner wrote that something strange occurred to her uh, at one point in her work as she was punching the clock, eating these, at these fine restaurants. As she writes that, In my own time, I returned to the palate of a six-year-old suburban child. All I ever wanted was toast with butter, pasta with red sauce, and my salvation 
my obsession, the only thing I ever wanted to eat reliably, chicken tenders. Mmm, chicken tenders. She got bored with the highest delights and most sophisticated pleasures that this world has to offer for the tongue, and in the end, she wanted chicken tenders. It doesn't matter if you cultivate the taste for high culture kind of pleasures. Drinking real coffee, right? Or eating at the best restaurants, attending orchestras, those kinds of concerts. Or if you like low culture, it doesn't matter. Eating chicken tenders and watching stand-up comedy. In the end, it doesn't matter because none of that can give you fullness of joy. As the preacher says in verse 2, laughter, comedy, it's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? In the end, like Helen Rossner and the preacher, you too will get tired, bored of delicacies, and your tongue will long for more. And more importantly, your heart will long for more than that. So Rossner's right. It's possible to have too much of a good thing. But what, be, what she fails to say is this. This is why you are not made for things. You were not made for these kinds of pleasures. You were made for so much more, your creator. You were made for more than food, drink, and sex. You were made to delight in God himself, the creator of all that is good. And it is not possible to have too much of God because he is infinite goodness. He is the creator of all that is good, beautiful, and true, You can't have too much of him who is infinite goodness. King David, he came to this conclusion in Psalm 16, verse 11, where he says, O Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In comparison with the pleasures of life, he's the creator of, of infinite goodness. He is the eternal source of every blessing we enjoy, the inventor of all the delicacies that we taste with our tongue and see with our eyes, the creative genius behind our sensory experience. It is because of him that we were able to enjoy the richness of life in a variety of ways. If creation is so delightful, how much more delightful than must be the Creator, God. Only in His presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And in comparison, according to verse 10, we see that the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he he didn't deny his eyes or deprive his heart from any pleasure in creation that exists. And yet in the end, he didn't find that fullness, that fullness that is only found in the Creator, God. He only found emptiness. One author puts it this way. He says that feeding our senses thrills us, but cannot cure what aches us. We might be thrilled, we might get caught up in excitement and emotion and and sensory experience, but it can't cure the ache within. So if your version of utopia, your dream world, consists of maximum pleasures for yourself, well, you will never find true happiness there. It is not to be found in that place. Maybe you're here today and that's what you've been pursuing lately. Maybe 
you've been seeking the best food, the best drinks, the highest delights, and, or maybe you're just vegging out on junk food and binging on Netflix and taking that pursuit of pleasure. But both are trying to find fullness of joy. And the teacher is saying it's not to be found in pleasures in life. So experiment one falls short. What's next? Well, the next experiment is a constructor of projects. And we see that in verses 4 through 6, where the teacher tries to experiment, building his own small utopia for him to enjoy. And when we look at the language here, as we study it, commentators see that he's trying to basically build a new Garden of Eden for himself to enjoy, his own little paradise. And with artful skill, he builds everything that he thought he needed for a little R&R, rest and relaxation. And he gives us a list of some of his greatest accomplishments in his work. And he describes it for us, great projects, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, water reservoirs, and groves of flourishing trees. Basically, maybe kind of like if you visited the, the Huntington Library Museum, he's living there. Or Hearst Castle, the, the cream of the, uh, the, the cream, uh, the top, the best you can imagine and build for yourself. And it's very interesting that um, in uh, uh, an old commentary, an old interpretation of Ecclesiastes uh, in Aramaic, the Targum, it describes that Solomon sat down to write this book as he was reflecting on the future, or getting a glimpse of the future of his kingdom and the future of all of his greatest accomplishments. And we know that under King Solomon, that the kingdom of Israel was united. It was strong. It was beautiful. It was built in peace and prosperity. There were great achievements, but Ecclesiastes is not reflecting on that momentary bliss that existed during his lifetime. Rather, it's him thinking about the future of his kingdom as divided, destroyed, and ultimately exiled from the land. Now, we shouldn't think that that interpretation is inspired, per se, by, by God, but it is fitting because after constructing his own Garden of Eden, his personal utopia, he realizes that fullness is not found there either. Why? Why can't you find it in, in building your own little utopia? Well, I'm sure he enjoyed it, but the teacher, he foresaw the future of his utopia, its destruction. And this is meant to make us take a second look at our greatest achievements in life and face the reality that none of it will endure. None of it will remain. Everything is hevel, vapor, smoke. It will vanish and fade. To illustrate this, recently I uh, dedicated some time in my spare time to renovate our backyard, which was just concrete. And we put in grass and built a playground for the kids and a, and a nice gazebo area. And it's kind of like our own little small paradise, our own little utopia. And it's enjoyable for sure. But the other day, perhaps because I'm studying Ecclesiastes, I was sitting there enjoying it and began to try and imagine the future and realize that in the future, one day, either before, I, before or after I die, that our whole house and our whole backyard will eventually rot, decay, 
and be demolished and some real estate monger is going to come and tear it down and build something else there, bigger and newer and better and make money off of it. That is reality. The glory of all of our greatest achievements will quickly lose value and one day all of your greatest achievements will be about as worthy and valuable as that participation trophy that your mom is saving for you in the attic, right, to give to you. The glory of every project, every reward, every diploma, or even doctorate that you get will in time fade into meaninglessness. No personal achievement, however great, not even the Nobel Prize, will earn you fullness of joy. It's not to be found there. We experience paradise lost. The Garden of Eden cannot be remade, either on a personal or societal level. It's out of our reach. So don't expect to find a perfect home or a perfect community, a perfect church, or a perfect country. It can't be found. No matter how much time and effort you put into your work, into politics, to try and improve your own world, or the world at large, eventually your worldly achievements will devalue, decay, and desist. And maybe this is you. Maybe this is your pursuit that you're in the midst of. You're focusing on your career. You're saving up for home improvements. You're an entrepreneur moving up and seeking a better life. Well, the teacher is saying, wake up and smell the coffee. Fullness of joy is not to be found in that either. And so experiment two falls short, just like experiment one. Neither thrilling pleasures nor grand projects can bring about fullness of joy. And so we're on to the third experiment, the third pursuit, collector of possessions. We see this in verses 7 through 8. He becomes a collector of possessions. He buys all kinds of things and fills his house, his property, with all kinds of possessions and precious things. And when I read this, when I read this, I thought of Lord of the Rings, and particularly the Hobbit, and Smog, the, the dragon from Tolkien's Hobbit. And he describes the dragon as this beast, all dragons, like these beasts that are gripped by insatiable greed. He says, dragons steal gold and jewels, you, you know, from men and elves and dwarfs, wherever they can find them, and they guard their plunder as long as they live, which is practically forever unless they are killed and never enjoy a brass ring of it. And in The Hobbit, Smog is an especially greedy dragon. He collected a mass of gold and precious things and then lodged himself like a worm inside of the deep, dark mountain and, and there rested upon the pile of his goods and his gold, sleeping on it like a bed, alone. And there are plenty of people in the world that are consumed by greed and need to buy more and more. We can think of the rich, lonely people and their big mansions trying to collect things. Maybe you can imagine somebody right now, you're thinking of someone in particular, and you might think to yourself, well, that's ridiculous. How foolish are they to, to think that fullness of joy is found in all of those things and possessions? Hmm. Well, let's think again, because I think you and I are the same. You and I are the same. How different are we? How often did you go shopping this last month, maybe? Or this last year? Not for groceries, but shopping 
for more possessions. What did you get? Did you really need it? Did you really, really need it? What was your heart saying to you in the moment when you're in the store and you saw that thing that you just thought you really needed? It doesn't matter if you buy things from Gucci or the thrift store. We're all collecting things. We're all doing it. We're all pursuing happiness through collecting different kinds of possessions. All of us are like this. Or maybe it's not possessions in a material thing. Maybe it's people, because that's what we see also with the teacher as well. He collects people, relationships. Maybe you like the thrill and excitement of meeting new people and winning their affection with your looks and your charm. You like collecting admirers and people that like you and follow you on Instagram. Maybe that's what you're after. Look, don't be fooled. No amount of getting and collecting will give you fullness of joy or true happiness. Like Smog the Dragon, many of the richest people in the world end up buying and collecting tons of things way more than you and I will ever have, and they never find joy or happiness. They always want more and more. And that's why they keep buying and hoarding more. After a time with mad hungers that they can't satisfy, many of them sadly turn to drugs to numb the pain or alcohol, and some commit suicide. Because like smog, the pile of gold that you may find yourself sleeping on could be as big as a mountain, but it can't fill your heart. It can't cure what aches deep down. Now, the problem is not having a lot of possessions. The teacher would not suggest that we would pursue a a pure minimalist kind of lifestyle, a vow of poverty. Uh, A lot of what he mentions here, the possessions are good things. Possessions and riches are not bad in and of themselves. They can be gifts from God, blessings for us to enjoy. The problem is that we have a dragon-like tendency with greed to turn those good things into ultimate things. When we think that by simply possessing and collecting them that then we will achieve happiness and joy, that they will somehow give us that. The list of things and relationships that we collect and turn into ultimate things in this way is is literally endless. There will always be, therefore, jobs in the marketing realm. Marketing at us more and more to get us to buy more and more. And friends, the teacher is showing us that true happiness does not consist in collecting possessions. It doesn't exist there. And we again learn from King David a lesson. The the, the temple of Jerusalem, it was filled with precious gold and gems and great treasures. But the delight for King David was not in the decorations of precious gold and jewels and the possessions that were in the temple. No, rather he says, as we heard in the call to worship from Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, the only thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. That's the posture of a wise heart. And so if your dream of utopia looks like you sitting on top of a pile of gold surrounded by servants and admirers and beautiful lovers, well, the teacher says 
This too is vanity, chasing after the wind, meaninglessness. And so to put the the last nail in the coffin, he gives us the conclusion in verses 9 through 11 to these experiments, to this pursuit of happiness under the sun. And he describes it to us there, saying, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. The chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You see, he wants us to learn from his experiences instead of going through it ourselves. He's been to the top of the highest mountain, and he says, eh, the view is not that great. He's telling us to stop while we're ahead. Drop your dreams of utopia. There is nothing you can do to make it happen, so stop killing yourself, running in the hamster wheel with the rest of humanity, pursuing happiness and joy here under the sun. It can't be found. It can't be found. So where is it found? Where is wholeness found? Where is joy found? Well, in the Bible, God makes it clear to us that there is a utopia. There is a perfect place, but it's not of this world. He wants us to long for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the true utopia, and the Bible concludes at the very end with the description of the divine utopia that awaits us in Christ. Remember in the beginning I asked you, in your own personal dream of utopia, what's at the center of it? What's at the heart of that? Well, we can ask the same thing of the Bible and of God. In Revelation, at the very end, what is at the heart, the center of utopia, according to God, the kingdom of God? What's at the middle? Well, we see it. Well, John sees it, rather. God himself. God himself. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. John says that he saw, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the great tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. You see, friends, God is calling us to drop our dreams of utopia so that we would begin to desire a better utopia, the kingdom of God where he is at the center. You can't have too much of the Creator. Remember that. He is infinitely good and delightful, and He alone can fix your aching and longing heart with fullness of joy. And the good news for us is that God in His mercy and grace, He sent His Son, Jesus. The Son of God came in love for us to pursue us, not in pursuit of His own happiness, but in order to make us his treasure. He sacrificed all of the treasures in heaven in order to win us over for himself, to save us from our lust, greed, and pride. He took upon himself our corruption, and he buried it in his death. And now, because of his sacrifice, 
the treasure of heaven. True joy is within our reach. By faith alone, you can reach out and have Jesus for yourself. He gives himself to you as a free gift of his grace. All of the delights and joy found in him, free of charge. So trust in him. Find your fullness and wholeness in him, in him alone. And as you await his return, because he's coming back, just as surly as he rose from the dead, as you wait, yes, enjoy life's blessings, but guard your heart from treasuring them too much. Treasure instead Jesus. And more and more by faith, make him the center of your own personal utopia that you're longing for, that you're desiring the kingdom of God. Because in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Thank you, Father God, for this word of Ecclesiastes. It is so hard for us to chew on and to swallow. We don't like, we admit, we don't often turn to passages like this because they expose our sinfulness. They expose how frail and how corrupt we are and how deceitful our hearts can be. We delight, however, that you have in your word revealed to us where true joy and happiness is found in Jesus, and you've made him a free gift of grace to us. The great cost, yes, his own sacrifice for us. May we be gripped by your love for us, O Father, that that we might set him as our heart's treasure and delight in him more and more and show that to the world around us and pull others into the same dream of the kingdom of God that we are pursuing. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.